Last week, I introduced you to J.D. Vance. This week, I want to introduce you to another incredible person. This is Rachel Den Hollander. Rachel was one of the first women to come forward publicly with accusations against U.S. Uh, gymnastics trainer Larry Nasser and his sexual abuse of her and other gymnasts over the course of decades. Where Rachel caught the national attention is at Larry's sentencing trial. He had pleaded guilty after years of denial, and now he was facing sentencing. In an amazing event in American history, 200 or more of his victims gathered in a courtroom near Lansing, Michigan, and over nine days gave testimony of the devastating impact that his actions had on their life. Rachel was the last to speak. And when she spoke, what she said grabbed the nation's attention. This is what she said. How much is a little girl worth? And then she answered her own question. These victims are worth everything. And I plead with you to impose the maximum sentence under the plea agreement because everything is what these survivors are worth. It was an incredible moment. It captured the attention of national media. What is a little girl worth? After the trial, when he was sentenced to the maximum allowed by law, the judge of that case, Judge Rosemarie Aquilina, said that Rachel was the one who had built an army of survivors, called her a five-star general, and then she said this, Rachel Den Hollander is the bravest person that I've ever had in my courtroom. I think Rachel's story goes hand in hand with what we talked about last week, and that is this, that your skeletons can be Satan's greatest weapon or God's most powerful tool. See, in Rachel's life, she was willing to drag her skeleton out of the closet, and in so doing, she played a leading role in seeing many other uh, women find freedom and healing from years of past hurt. She was willing to take that skeleton and put it out in the light of day, and God used it for amazing things. But she was only able to do that after she realized that the shame that she had felt for years was not her fault, and it didn't belong to her. In a book she wrote, talking about the questions she would ask herself, how she you know, would talk about this publicly and let other people know, she said this, how could I explain to someone the confusion, the sick feeling, and the unnamed shame that swirled through my own mind? She said, after 15 years of this, how can I explain coming forward now? How can I explain the shame that held me back for so long? But then she goes on to say this. I think it's very important for victims to remember where the shame belongs and to take every opportunity to put the shame back where it belongs. It belongs with the abuser and the abuser only. See, uh, see uh, she found freedom from her shame when she realized that she didn't own that guilt. That guilt was not hers, and so the shame was not hers. But that's not always the case for us. Matter of fact, a lot of times in our lives, the shame that we feel is a result of our own actions. It's a result of our own guilt. Sometimes the shame that we feel is directly because of sin that sits squarely on our shoulders. The relationship that's broken is our fault. We're the one who racked up all the debt. We're the one who made the decision that cost us our job, that cost us our family, our friends, and our reputations. What, what do we do then? Like, you know, this with Rachel, she dealt with her shame, but it wasn't her guilt. She dealt with her skeleton, but she didn't create it. I think the question that we have to ask now is what do we do 
when the skeletons we have to confront are the skeletons that we've created. These aren't somebody else's. These are ours. This isn't their guilt. This is our guilt. See, I think this week, we're gonna see the answer to that question play out in real time. And I'm gonna give you a hint at what that is. It's this idea. Maybe you wanna write it down. What we're gonna learn is that shame is Satan's weapon and guilt is God's tool. Now, I know that sounds crazy. That's countercultural. That's like upside down. What do you mean that guilt is God's tool? I thought guilt was a bad thing. Stay with us. I think you'll see it at the end. So where we're gonna see this play out today is in an account recorded for us by one of Jesus's followers named John. And in his recorded uh, writings found in your Bible and his gospel named after him, the gospel of John, in chapter four, John accounts a time that he and Jesus and the other followers made a trip and they went through the country of Samaria. Now, it's important that they go through the country of Samaria because let's just say that Jews and Samaritans did not get along in the day, but that fact plays an important part in the story. So let's pick up reading John's account in John chapter four, verses four through seven. This is what we read. It says, he, that's Jesus, had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her. With those words, give me a drink, Jesus begins a truly amazing conversation with this Samaritan woman. And we're not gonna have time to walk through it verse by verse today or explain it verse by verse. I really encourage you to take some time this week, maybe this afternoon, and, and go through it because it's an incredible conversation. But if we were reading this as John had first written this and sent this recording of the life of Jesus out, something that those people would have noticed that we might not is that something's off in this situation. Well, number one, something's off because this woman says, well, who are you to talk to me? I'm a woman. In this culture at this time, men and women who were not married did not even talk to each other in public. And beyond the fact that it was a man and a woman, she said, I'm a Samaritan and you're a Jewish rabbi and we're not supposed to get along. And so something's weird here. But I think the thing that would have caught the most attention is not what the conversation started with, but when the conversation started. See, look back. It says that this all happened about noon. Now, you may say, why is that a big deal? That doesn't seem like a big deal. Well, it's not a big deal to you because you don't have to carry a heavy jar of water out to a well, fill it up, bring it back in the heat of the day. What they did in that time was that most women from the communities who would go fill their water jars would do so in the cool of the morning. Matter of fact, it was a community event. We may say that it was a lot like hanging out around the water cooler at the office. They would all go in the cool of the morning, fill up their jars and come back. The fact that this happened about noon shows us that everything is not as we would think. Something's a little off. And what we're going to see is that the reason the woman was coming to the well at noon is because she was hiding from people. She didn't want to be around those people. She would rather walk through the heat of the day if she could avoid people. And see, the reason why is, is that she had shame carried around with her. She was literally taking a walk of shame every day at noon. And I think the question then is why? I mean, what could be so big? What's such a big deal in this woman's life that would make her do that to avoid people that much? Well, 
She had a reputation, she had skeletons, and she had a past. And we can see that pretty clearly. But the thing I want you to see first is, and you gotta get this, is that her past was still impacting her present. No matter what it was, and we'll see what it was, but no matter what it was, the point is, is that it was affecting her today. Think if we're honest with ourselves, some of that, uh, some of those skeletons from our past still impact us today because of the shame that we bear. That was true for this woman as well. Skip down if you're following along to verse number 16. Jesus says, go call your husband, he said to her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You've correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you're a prophet. Now, just just put yourself in this woman's shoes for just a minute. Here she is going in the middle of the day to this well to fill her water pot so that she doesn't run into anybody. And as she's coming up, she sees a man. It's fairly obvious he's a Jewish rabbi, so she's really not expecting an encounter. But as she comes to the well, this man says, give me a drink. She's taken back. Okay, you're a man. That's weird that you're talking to me. You're a Jewish rabbi. That's weird that you're talking to me. But they strike up this conversation. Now, imagine how weird it gets when this man looks at her and says, now go get your husband and bring him back. Well, she says, you know what? I don't have a husband. He says, oh, I know. Well, hold on. How do you know? I don't know you. You don't know me. What do you mean you know I don't have a husband? And then he goes on. This man says, in fact, you've had five husbands and the one that you have now is not your husband. Like just imagine this woman's probably looking around. Who, who, who told him this? How did he learn this? But I think very quickly she realizes there's something different about you. You're a prophet. See, this woman had been married five times. And while we can't be sure if she was widowed five times or something else happened, probably something else happened based on the context, what we do know is that those wounds from her past had scarred her life in the present. Those five past marriages, that new relationship had brought such shame in her life that she was coming to the well in the heat of the day to have to avoid being around other people. The man she was living with now, not her husband, it's not a big deal to us in our culture in uh, 2021 America, but I think you've got to zoom out and take a historical and cultural perspective. You need to realize that we today in the Western culture are one of the only places and times in history where it has been a acceptable for an unmarried man and an unmarried woman to live together. Matter of fact, this was a huge no-no in other cultures today. It's a huge no-no in cultures across time, and it is extremely a no-no for Jesus in this point of time. And I think that, that because of that, it signifies that, man, this is a big deal. By living with this man who's not my husband, I'm really giving up hope of ever being married again to those who looked around, not just the five previous marriages, but the fact that she was now living with a man who wasn't her husband was probably a signal that, you know, she was damaged goods and that she wouldn't be married again. And that's what that reality of that culture said. She lost hope. She lost self-respect. She'd given up. She'd quit trying. But as this conversation progresses, getting really uncomfortable, the woman tries to deflect. She raises a big theological question for Jesus to answer. But Jesus saw through those deflections 
He saw through her defenses. He saw through her past and he saw her, saw who she really was. And ultimately, by the end of that conversation, she sees who Jesus really is. He's not just any Jewish rabbi. He is the promised Messiah, the son of God sent to save the world. And from there, she tears out and she goes back into town, not to take her water back home. She leaves her pot behind and she goes into town and begins to tell everybody who will listen, the same people that she's just hidden away from earlier in the day, she begins to seek them out to tell them, you've got to meet this man. We'll pick up reading in verse 39. It said, Now, many Samaritans from that town believed in him, Jesus, because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. Many more believed because of what he said, and they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we've seen and heard from ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. That's an incredible end to this story. Through her testimony, this woman who was so broken and overwhelmed by her shame has now led many people in her community to faith in Jesus. And beyond that, I mean, it's kind of cool. Jesus camps out and stays for two days. At this point in time, the only reason a Jewish person would go through Samaria was to hurry up and get there quicker. And yet Jesus slows down and hangs out for two days. See, this is what we're talking about when we say that your past, your skeletons can be Satan's most powerful weapon or God's most powerful tool. This woman, her past, she had skeletons and they at one time at the beginning of the story were Satan's most effective weapon against her. Those skeletons had brought shame and brokenness in her life and it was crippling her in the present. But by the end of her encounter with Jesus, after addressing her unspoken guilt, she found freedom from her shame and wound up leading many in her community to faith in Jesus. But I think this is where we need to lean in and make something clear. And it's this idea. Guilt and shame are not the same thing. Guilt and shame are not the same thing. I know often they go hand in hand, but they are not identical and they are not inseparable. See, guilt is the result of an action. You are guilty. Shame is a feeling that we carry with us. And a lot of times those go hand in hand, but I think we make a mistake when we lump those together. They're not the same thing. They're not identical. They're not inseparable. And we see this in Rachel's story, right? Because the shame she felt was the result of guilt that belonged to somebody else. It wasn't her guilt. It wasn't her action. It was somebody else. She was a victim. She had nothing to do with Larry Nasser's evil actions, but she still carried the shame with her. But here in John chapter four, the shame that this woman felt was directly tied to her own guilt and her own actions in the past. And I think when we find ourselves struggling with and living in shame, the first thing that we have to do is identify what type of shame are we feeling. Both types of shame are powerful tools of Satan, but both need to be handled differently. 
And to be honest, we don't have enough time this week to talk about how to handle both, uh, how to handle shame that is not from your own guilt, how to handle shame that comes from someone else's actions. We're gonna lean into that idea a little bit more next week. But for this week, for the rest of our time together, I wanna lean into uh, that idea of how do we handle shame that does come from our own guilt? How do we deal with shame that's a result of our personal actions? I think here's the starting point. Very first, right off the bat, you can't run away from your guilt. You have to own it. You have to own it. I mean, just imagine how easy it would have been for this woman to deny her guilt to this stranger. She'd never seen him before. He was a Jewish man, probably not staying in town. She was likely not ever gonna see him after. It would have been super easy for her to deny it, deflect it. It would have been super easy, but instead she owns it. Instead, she owns her guilt. She says, you're, you're right. I think we spent a lot of time talking about that idea last week. So maybe you wanna go back and watch that again or listen to it again. But here's the thing. It's super easy for us to deny, dismiss, or deflect guilt that comes our way. Whether it's guilt that we feel or guilt that somebody accuses us of, I think our first reaction when that guilt comes our way is to deny it, dismiss it, deflect it, just get rid of it. And more often than not, it comes out of our mouths like this. Well, I know I'm not perfect, but, you know? Well, of course, no, you don't need to give a disclaimer. We know you're not perfect, but when you say that, it makes us think that you think that we think that you're perfect, but you're not. I know I'm not perfect, but... And then we go on to deny, dismiss, deflect our actions. See, what this is, when these words come out of our mouth, it's an attempt at self-justification. And I get that. Like, I get the desire sometimes to justify our actions before others because honestly, there are times when people don't have all the facts. There's time we're providing context and motivations are helpful when we're trying to evaluate somebody's decisions or actions. But the problem is, is that we run there way too fast. We, we run to self-justification like immediately and that creates two huge issues. And the first is that we tend to judge ourselves by our intentions, but we're only willing to judge others by their actions. Think about that for a minute. I think we see that play out in life all the time. Maybe this past week you were driving and you cut somebody off. Maybe this past week you were driving and you blew by somebody knocking their doors off. Maybe you ran a red light and you say, yeah, but I was in a hurry. Yeah, but it was an emergency. And what you're doing is you're revealing that you're judging yourself not by your actions, but by your intentions, your motivations. Now flip the script. Somebody does that to you this week when they cut you off, when they blow your doors off, when they run a red light, those people are just reckless idiots because we're just judging them by their actions. See, when we just run to self-justification, judging ourselves by our intentions and others by our actions, guys, that's gonna lead to a warped view of reality and you're going to have terrible relationships. We just can't do that. We can't justify ourselves and condemn others. We can't always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and never give it to anybody else. But I think the bigger issue is that the idea of self-justification is directly, inherently opposed to the gospel of Jesus. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we 
are guilty, that we cannot justify ourselves, that no matter how good we try to be, no matter how often we come to church, no matter how many things we try to change, that we are totally incapable of being good enough on our own to earn one step into heaven's gates. We cannot justify ourselves. We need Jesus to justify us before God. That's the point of the cross. That's the message of the gospel. See, our guilt in its deepest sense is dealt with entirely when we are made right with God through trust in Jesus. It is a quick and decisive event that happens at the moment of a new birth. But it can't happen until we own it. See, you can't try to justify yourself and at the same time ask Jesus to justify you. You just can't do that. You have to own your guilt. You have to own it. See, the biblical idea there is a word repentance. And I think we hear repentance, maybe if you grew up in church and the idea is that I'm sorry for doing that sin. I'm not gonna do it anymore. We're just gonna pick a different sin or we're gonna do something differently. But I think the idea of repentance is bigger than that. The idea of biblical repentance is that I'm turning away from my self-justification and my self-righteousness and I'm turning to Jesus, to his justification and his righteousness. But that doesn't happen until we own it, until we admit that we need it. But after we've owned it, after we've repented, we trust that Jesus can and will forgive it. I think, he, I think this is true. We can only admit our guilt when we're convinced it's gonna be met with forgiveness. I think some of the reason that we have for not owning our guilt and trying to justify ourselves is because deep in our heart of hearts, we don't believe that we'll be forgiven if we own it. Well, can I tell you the Bible consistently tells us otherwise. Maybe there's not a place in the scripture that is clearer than when John says it. He writes to a church now and he says this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Man, that's good news. When we own it, when we confess, when we repent, he is faithful to forgive us, to cleanse us from our unrighteousness and to give us his very righteousness. And this is why it's so important because only in believing that, only in trusting that can we find freedom from the shame that the enemy uses as a weapon against us. Well, how, how is that possible? What makes that true? See, when we understand and believe that our sin and our guilt has been dealt with once and for all by the son of God himself, when we trust that our guilt has been met with unimaginable forgive us, then we can begin to move forward free from shame. That's how you move past shame is to deal with the guilt. And the good news of the gospel is, is that Jesus has dealt with your guilt. And when you believe that, when you trust that, your shame doesn't stand a chance. It's not yours anymore. You don't have to carry it with you. Paul 
wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He himself had a past. And this is how Paul said that. He asked in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, what then are we to say about these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He's also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, as it's written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That is the gospel. When you understand that Jesus has certainly clearly, completely paid for your guilt, then you don't have to live in shame. You just don't. Who brings a charge against God's elect? Nobody. Who throws accusations our way? Nobody, because Jesus has taken it all. But what worries me is that a ton of people will never get to that place of freedom from shame and true forgiveness because they refuse to lean into their guilt. They never own it. So listen to me, hear me. You've got to lean into your guilt so that you won't live in shame. When you keep denying and deflecting and dismissing that guilt, what you're doing is keeping yourself from the forgiveness of that guilt and the freedom from shame that the gospel offers you. You've got to lean in. See, while on the stand there in Lansing, Michigan, Rachel Denolander didn't just talk to the judge. She didn't just recount the horrific events and the damage it had caused in her life. While on the stand, she took a minute to look at Larry Nasser, speak directly to him. This is what she said. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing. And that's what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found and it'll be there for you. What an amazing message. Can't imagine the bravery, the courage, the compassion, the grace it took for Rachel to look at that man and say that. But it was true. And it's true for you. I know owning your guilt can be hard. And I know that when you lean into that guilt, the weight is crushing the feeling is overwhelming. It will break you. But like Rachel said, that's what makes the gospel of Jesus so sweet. Is that when you own it, when you lean into it, when you repent of it, there is complete forgiveness 
and ultimate freedom to be found. And maybe today, on your back porch, in your chair, on your couch, in your car, I don't know, you're watching this and God's moving in your heart and you say, I need that. I need that freedom from shame. I need that forgiveness of guilt. And you're willing to lean into that for the first time. Listen, we have people right now, if you're on your phone, if you're on your computer, on both of our platforms, we have people who want to pray with you, who want to talk with you, who want to help you know for certain that you are forgiven and to help you find that freedom that you need. So reach out, comment, send us a message, click the button for live prayer. We want to have that conversation with you because we know there is freedom to be found in Christ. But as we end, let me pray for you. God, thank you for the time to talk about guilt, to talk about shame, and to talk about how you offer us freedom and forgiveness from both. So God, I pray now for those who are watching God, that you would just help them lean into their guilt, not dismiss it, not deny it, not deflect from it, lean into it so that they can find forgiveness. And as they find forgiveness, they would find freedom from the shame that they've carried with them for so long. And they would learn to live in the freedom that Jesus offers. In his name we pray, amen.